Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. I'm Tim. And I'm Marshall. How you doing, Marshall? Doing well. Sun's shining today. Yeah. I'll take it. We it had is. it's it's a it's a typical Canadian spring, mm-hmm. which is essentially just winter coming back over and over again, and you get just enough nice weather to think it's done and then it's not done. Yeah, I know we've talked about this, but I'm going to share it with uh, everyone else. Saw an amazing little clip, a TikTok, shared on Facebook. Yeah, This guy, the sun shows up, he steps out, he's ready to plant his garden. And his buddy, which is also played by him, is like, where are you going? He's like, it's beautiful, it's spring, I'm going to plant a garden. And his buddy looks and goes, oh. He doesn't know about second winter. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Second winter, third winter. We're not done yet. I mean, it's fif- it's 15 degrees Celsius and sunny today. There's There are snowstorms in our future. It's a lie. That's it's what it is. A filthy, dirty lie. Okay. So today, we are going to be covering another big old chunk of church history. Because we are still in the Dark Ages. Still. So we don't have as much content to really camp out on Mm -hmm. and so we're going to be covering some big people and some big events that occur over the course of like 150 years pretty much yeah we're talking mid 600s to 800 there's a big thing that happens in 800 that we might leave till next week but uh but yeah seventh and eighth century essentially yeah, yeah yeah fair to say that and so during this time, in spite of it being the quote-unquote dark ages, a, you know, disputed term, but we went with it last sure. week, yeah. um, there are still things going on in the world. Right. And so we both came this week with a short list of things that are that are happening. I'd say a really short list, but go ahead. I've got like five. Oh. Maybe six. Okay. So here, here's what I got. The first paper money is used in China that's around one of, 650. That's one of mine. Oh, nice. Okay. <clears throat> and, and it comes it comes because metal shortage, right? Metals needing to be used in other things. Yeah. And uh and so paper currency, which is deeper than just a way of trading in place of metal. Mhm. Right? The metal held value itself mm-hmm. and was also minted as a representation. This is purely representation. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so there's there's this whole mindset of a greater national economy and federal minting mm. and and promissory notes that kind of go behind it. So yeah. paper money is a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is, and I mean uh, much sooner than we might think it would have originated. Absolutely, as a lot of things that happen in China are actually, but that's right. Yeah, um, also in China, there's a lady named Wu Zetan who was the first and only female emperor of China. She ruled from 690 to 705. She has a kind of an interesting story where like she was a concubine of a king mm-hmm. and then he dies and his son becomes king and then she marries him and then he dies and then she's kind of like the dowager empress of their kid and then he dies under mysterious circumstances and then she becomes the empress it's really neat uh, and no one has any questions well i'm sure people had questions but asking questions might have got you your head chopped off or right. something. right you might have joined the list <laughs> yeah okay um greek fire is invented so what greek fire was it's actually kind of a bit of a mystery but it was essentially like the precursor to like incendiary weapons like pretty much early flamethrowers. They use these tubes, usually on boats, and they'd get close to another boat, and through these tubes, they'd blow this substance that they don't even 100% know what exactly it is, and it was flammable, and it would set the water on fire, and they would... This was like a a way that they did battle on Mm -hmm. the seas with, like, flamethrowers in the Dark Ages. It's kind of of intense. (laughs) Anyways, um, the first known church organ in 730. Right. Do you got anything to say about that? Or? I think we. Do you want to get into it here? Do you want to? Let's get into it, it here. Let's okay. get into it here. Yeah the the church organ. So the organ was not new. 
This is not to say the organ was invented mm. at this time. Rudimentary forms of the organ are talked about by Plato. Okay. So we're talking, we're talking deep into the BCs. Mm, okay. Right. Uh, but in in the Eastern Church, at this time, it starts becoming something used in worship. Cool. Interestingly enough, it doesn't make its way into the West until ninth century, mm. another couple hundred years. Uh, it's a product of monasticism. These monks building and using these organs. Cool. Uh, it, it's also not only that, one thing that I was reading about this is not only is the organ the beginning of instrumentation in the church, it's the beginnings of polyphonic music in the church. Okay. That is to say, everything else was a single note being sung all together in like almost, not even a chant would be the right way to say it, but but the use of harmonies and multiple notes blended together to create chords, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Uh, the complexity of music in the church shifts because of the capacities of the organ to introduce those things. That's cool. And so polyphonic instrumentation and polyphonic music is now being written for the church in a different way. Mm. Uh, nice. And I bet there was someone who said, we don't need those instruments. <laughs> They're just so loud. And <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Church organs have literally gone silent. For the most part, yeah. I, I would say just in the last 20 years, mm -hmm. 20, 25 years, mm -hmm. um, some would argue that the reason is because modern church guys are just like, nope, not having it, don't want it, it's old. Mm -hmm. But then again, we use keys yeah. for the very similar purposes. An organ would fit into that very well. Sure. Laying what we call a droning pad, just a bass line for the song to sit on top of. Mm -hmm. We do that in other ways. Yeah. Electronic pads, keyboards. Uh, sometimes we do it with an electric guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason is nobody plays it anymore. Yeah. It's kind of coming to fashion. It's kind of, you know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like uh, how we don't have blacksmiths anymore mm -hmm. because... You know, it's just kind of fallen out of fashion, but we do have like machinists, lots mm -hmm. and lots and lots and lots of machinists. It's just that like the technology kind of moved on. And and so you just don't have as many people who have that same skill set. And there's a there's a sense in which that's a lamentable thing. Like it's too bad that mm -hmm. that, that skill set yep. isn't common anymore. But it's it's understandable in light of the fact that like, you know, there's a lot of people who play keys and who play other instruments as well. So yeah, they learn the keys, but they don't want to translate that over to organ, mm -hmm. which is which does have its own specific skill sets. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, but I have a guitar pedal purchased for the sole reason of making my guitar sound like an organ, <laughs> which is pretty cool. <laughs> because <laughs> because if we want organ tones on a Sunday morning, we've got to create that somehow. There you go. Right. As nice. as a background kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh. But yeah, it's. It's interesting to see how long ago, I, I, all of that is to say, it's interesting to see how long ago mm. organ came into the church. Because here we're talking about the 6th century. Yeah. 7th century. Yeah. And how we witnessed the fall of the organ within the church. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Now, that's not to say that maybe we're just not at a downturn and up. Sure, yeah. Right? There was a time... When the organ was a big part of even even secular music, the Hammond B3 organ is huge in 70s rock and roll. Mm. Uh, and so it was very much there. It kind of falls out in the 80s. It's gone in the 90s, and it's only clinging on to the church up until the early 2000s. And now it's rare. Mm -hmm. Churches a lot of times will pay organists who aren't a part of the church aren't even believers, mm -hmm. but we got to find somebody who knows how to play this thing right. to just truck in <laughs> on a Sunday and play the, the organ for them. Right, uh, right. But I, I just think that's fascinating mm -hmm. that this very, very ancient tool mm -hmm. could be completely gone in a f decade, mm -hmm. and we watched it. I yeah, yeah. Um, other things going on? Uh, 
Iron Horseshoes begin to be used. Yep, I uh, had that one. And uh, the earliest English poetry that we have record of exists. And it's actually written by a guy we're going to talk about today. And in fact, we can just go right to talking about him right now if you want. Yep, yeah, because everything I had you mentioned. Yeah. So, oh, thanks nice. A lot. Thanks okay. a lot. Yeah. So, we want to talk about a guy named Bede. 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 Uh, also known as the Venerable Bede. Yeah. I don't know if he called himself that, but. B E D E. Yeah, that's how you spell it. Yeah, and Bede. Bede was born um, in 673 in Northumbria, so northern England. And he kind of was always on track. He was always going to be a monk. That was just his thing. He was always going to be a scholar. It was his It was his destiny. <laughs> it was meant to be. So you know how kids like grow up and from a very early age, they're like, I got this fire engine. Right. I'm going to be a fireman. Yeah. And yeah. that's all they think. How does, how does a four-year-old bead mm-hmm. portray this, I'm going to be a monk? Well, I think, so... In his like, like what st- toys does he have that he's just like I'm playing monk? It was probably books. It was probably being exposed to books. Gro- he grew yeah. up on church lands, um, so there was there was what was called bookland in early England, which were lands that the that the church directly ruled over, and so he grew up there. So he would have been exposed to the libraries and the scrolls and all that stuff, and and the you know, the knowledge and, and the power that you get from being able to read and write is significant. And I imagine that for, for some little boys, that's one way of, you know, advancing your career rather than just swinging a sword. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what that level of exposure does because my kids have always played church. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, and, and here's a a great story from that. So when Caleb was probably three or four, uh, they were playing church. And at that point, they, just like we used to do here, the kids would come forward after the music and we would uh, pray for them and then dismiss them. Okay. And so Caleb was like, I, I want to be the preacher. I want to be the preacher. I want to be daddy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I want to be the pastor. So they're like, all right. So they get together. They sing a couple songs. Caleb steps up to the pulpit to uh, deliver the sermon. It's time for the sermon. Okay. And he goes, uh, so we're going to have a picnic next week, and don't forget to sign up for it. Like, gave like three announcements and said, let's pray. And I, <laughs> and I thought, what? And then it dawned on me. My son thinks that I give the announcements at church for a living. Right, because he goes to children's he leaves. <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> that's, like, that's one way to put food on the table. I do the announcements every Sunday morning. <laughs> so, so Bede grows up and fulfills Hold his... Hold on, I'm not done with that. Oh, okay, sorry. This just struck me. For all those people that like to passive-aggressively approach their pastor and say... How long does it take to write a sermon anyway? Yeah. What? Can you imagine? What your kids what do your kids think you're kids doing think all I week? do all week long <laughs> if I just give the announcements? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. So back to whatever it is you wanted to talk about. Bede fulfills his calling, becomes a monk, becomes a prominent teacher and author, and uh, he writes a lot. Um He's he's interested in a wide range of subjects, uh, but he is, I think most notably, we could say a historian. Oh, yeah. Um, he is kind of, he's called the father of English history by some. He, some people have said that uh, he was the best historian since Herodotus, which, again, we're getting, we're talking about a long time between the ancient Greek historian Herodotus and the venerable, venerable Bede. And he gives us insight into church history, particularly the history of England, though, um, and and really gives us a lot of helpful insights into what was going on in a in a particularly again dark time in history where there wasn't a lot of records being kept, where there wasn't a lot of information being circulated, and so he sheds light on uh, on a part of history that without him might otherwise be really really unknown. 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah. What else do you want to talk about? about uh, <clears throat> I didn't have anything else on bead. Uh, but I, I, there are some things going on. Mm. Like there are still synods happening. Yes. Uh, so before bead in 663, there's the synod of Whitby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not quite as epic as some of the syn- synods we've had before. Mm-hmm. Major argument on the table. <laughs> well, just wait, because like here's here's the thing, right? Okay, so the the British are converting to Christianity, right? Um, as the the Anglo Saxons who weren't already Christians, and they're being brought into the fold. But in the eyes of Rome, there's just this massive and huge problem that needs to be resolved. Like it needs to be dealt with now, and if it's yep. not dealt with properly. All the British are cast out of the church and they are heretics and non-believers because listen, this is this is epic <laughs> to the level of like church splits over carpet color. <laughs> it's that's all, how intense, it's almost that bad. That's how intense. This is the epitome of majoring on minors. Yes. The qu- <laughs> which I preached on the other day. Which day of the year are we going to celebrate Easter? Yeah. Yeah. And that- and the problem is not we think that it's a spring thing, and they want to do it in the fall. No, 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 no. We're talking like the argument is within at most four days. Yeah, of each other. So, so way back at the Council of Nicaea, it was determined that Easter should be no longer be celebrated in conjunction with the Jewish Passover. Which I don't even know if that's the right call, but whatever, that's fine. Yeah, so so let's back up on that. We we, we did a whole Christmas episode. We're not gonna do a whole Easter episode. No, 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 no. But here's here's the here's the thing with Nicaea. When when this question is being asked, the the thing is, unlike Christmas, mm-hmm. we know exactly the day of the week that Jesus was put on the cross, mm-hmm. and count three days from when he rose. Mm-hmm. Right, that day can be calculated. Every year, according to the Jewish calendar, Mm -hmm. because it's given to us in scripture. Right. But it's a Jewish calendar. Which is different. And we don't, we don't do those things because we're Christians and we're distinct from the Jews. Right. And so the question isn't, is it the more accurate? The question is, how far can we distance ourselves from the Jews? Right. (laughs) Right. Even if that means doing something on what some might consider a wrong date. Yeah. And and their argument is, but Jesus rose on a Sunday, we should always celebrate on a Sunday. Right. Which is why Christmas can be any day of the week, and Easter is always a Sunday. Yeah. Because they're just like, what's the closest Sunday to the day we actually know was the resurrection day? Yeah. And, we'll do that day. And the, so the way that they figured it out, so so here's the thing between these two groups. It's not that one group is saying... We're going to follow the Jewish way. It's that they just have different mathematical formulas for figuring out which day is the appropriate one. And one is like based on an 84 year cycle and the other, the the more common one is a 19 year cycle. So sometimes it's different Sundays. And, and that is what, that is what is going to tear the church apart. And you know what, to be honest, there's not a Jewish way. The well, Jews don't recognize Easter. <laughs> no, but I mean Passover. Right. Pass, following pass, like uh, connecting it to when Passover is is celebrated. Yeah, and so I, w- I would throw this in as another aside on this. Whenever people, just like people want to throw out the whole, well, Christmas is just about the solstice. Mm-hmm. And Easter is about the equinox. Mm-hmm. Think, no, it's not. Yeah. It's about the Jewish calendar of the Passover, which has existed for millennia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the connection between the crucifixion and the resurrection and the Passover that happened in Egypt is thick. Like it, it wasn't, Oh, it just so happens that all this is happening to Jesus. And it also happens to be Passover. That's not right. Right. (laughs) It wasn't by chance. It was on purpose. Yeah. So, so might, might the eggs and bunnies have something to do? Yeah. But you know what? Just like we talked about in, in the Christmas episode that we're not talking about a strictly religious thing that has been paganized. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about a pagan thing that has been Christianized. We're talking about two celebrations that run in parallel. Right. Right. And marketing has amalgamated them. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Right. And so that's exactly what happened in, 
Christmas and exactly what happens in Easter. To which I will say, as I did then, icons bear the weight and the meaning that you give them. Mm-hmm. If you got a bunny or an egg, I got no judgment for you. <laughs> uh, we don't need to baptize them. They're separate traditions that run in parallel. Yeah. So essentially, the Synod of Whitby essentially ends this way. Uh, the delegation from Rome says, this is how we do it in Rome. And this is how also happens to be how they do it pretty much everywhere else, except for you guys. Those who set up this tradition that's different in Britain will be excused for their ignorance, but you're not ignorant anymore. <laughs> Peter has the keys to the kingdom. Therefore, the popes have the keys to the kingdom. Celebrate Easter when we tell you or we'll excommunicate you from the kingdom. Well, you can't have that, right? Like there are... <laughs> We talk all the time about primary, secondary, and tertiary orders. Right, right. They have taken this, like, I don't even know what word follows tertiary. Inconsequential. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Nominal at best. (laughs) They've moved it to primary. Oh, yeah. Like, not just you can't be a part of the church. You can't be a part. You won't even be recognized as a believer. Yeah. Matthew 18, treat them as... If they were unbelievers. Yeah. The, the the medieval church has no concept of proportion or nuance or no. any, everything is primary. Like everything. And it's going to cause in a couple episodes is going to cause a real big division. Uh, but, you know, spo- I don't want to spoil it yet, but uh, it, it gets it's crazy, man. It's it's every ev- everything is a hill to die on, and it's a hill that that you're gonna die on if you're against the church because they'll literally kill you. Uh, <laughs> anyways, so the date of Easter is set. Yes, and the redemptive plan of God for all of creation is preserved, <laughs> thanks to the Council of Whitby. Yes, thanks everybody. Praise be to God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, shortly after, in the early 700s, um, there's an interesting character we can chat about for uh, a couple minutes because he, he's got a couple interesting stories connected to him. Uh, Saint Boniface. I'm going to say Boniface because it's French. Boniface. Uh, I always heard of Saint Boniface. Boniface? Boniface. I learned it in French because like, I went to French Catholic school, so I learned the saints in, in French. Yeah. So all my, my, my experience of Catholicism is in the French language. Boniface. Boniface. Anyways, uh, so he was actually a British monk named Winfred, um, who was able to be, or he was about to be promoted to abbot, but instead decided he wanted to become a missionary. That's cool. Um, so he travels to these Germanic peoples on the mainland who were still pagans. He ends up going to Rome where he gets his new fancy name, Boniface or Boniface or whatever you want to call him. And uh, he was made a bishop of Germany. The problem is... So he's the Bishop of Germany. Sounds great. There's no organized church in Germany. Right? They're, they're, it's like it's like being told that you're like, yeah, Tim, you're the you're the pastor of Mars. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> would, that, would that be the and not even the lead, you're the associate. <laughs> you're the associate pastor of Mars. The um, lead is yet to be determined. Yeah, right. So uh anyways, but he he doesn't shy away from the task and he goes and he does some some interesting things. Most notably, he chops down a tree, a sacred tree known as Donner's Oak. And this was um, a very old, very big and important tree that was used for pagan ceremonies to the gods. And as he's chopping it down, apparently a strong wind blows and expedites the process. And the people there, the pagan people, are just expecting him to be struck down by Thor's lightning like Mm -hmm. that moment. And when he doesn't die, they're like wait, what? <laughs> and they convert. <laughs> I mean, that's the story. I don't know if it happened that quickly, but they were, they, this tree was so holy that they expected his chopping down of this tree would just result in his immediate death. And when it didn't, they thought they just had to reevaluate their entire worldview all of a sudden. God works in mysterious ways. Hey, hey. You know, it, it almost reminds me of what the Gideon story was supposed to be. Okay, yeah. Right? His dad had that big, tall altar thing that he was supposed to chop down. Mm-hmm. But he, he did it at, at night. night and tried to play it off like he didn't know who did it <laughs> until they all figured it out. What are you doing with that saw in your hand? Oh, this? Uh, <laughs> uh, 
not not sure. So so yeah, I I hear that and I think that man, that's what Gideon had the chance yeah. to be that guy. I know. Yeah. So he was also tasked with bringing the Frankish Church, so what was, you know, what would become France, back into the fold because they were accused of corruption. Um, really, they were just kind of independent and not really following Rome to a T. It's kind of the Synod of Whitby thing again. It's like Ro- now that Rome isn't Rome anymore, mm-hmm. it's like they're having a real hard time keeping everybody in line. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of time and energy spent to make sure that people all over the place are doing exactly the right thing they should be. Um, and so part of his job is to kind of bring the Frankish church back in the role. And the Franks actually become really important um, in, in our story shortly. But as for Mr. Bonyface, uh, he was murdered by robbers. And the story goes that th- these robbers knew he was going to be in a certain place and he was going to be preaching. And they kill him thinking they're going to seize all of his treasure, all of his, all of his riches. But instead of finding silver and gold, they find books and scrolls because those were the things that he had locked in his chest because those were the things that were most important to him and they're like well, what do we what do we what? do with this <laughs> oops we can't even read <laughs> <laughs> so anyways so saint boniface 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 whatever every time every time you say boniface <laughs> do you like it i think of like the 70s disco band bonium Oh, I, that's not even ringing any bells for me. No. It's too too long before my time. They did a Christmas album that okay. my wife's family loves. <laughs> but Disco Christmas just doesn't do it for me. It doesn't sound right at all. I'll play you some later. <laughs> if you're going to do retro Christmas, you got to go like older than that. It's got to be right? country, right? No, it's going to be like... It's got to be country. No, it's going to be like Nat Southern. King Cole and like... Southern. Mm, no, thanks. Stadler Brothers Christmas card. So, best Christmas album <laughs> So we mentioned we mentioned the Franks and uh, the Franks are important a little bit uh, because in the early 700s, the Umayyad Caliphate, which is part of the this Muslim empire that we talked about um, last week, they had invaded Europe and they had conquered essentially everything that is now Spain and Portugal and were pushing into France. All of northern Africa, all of northern Africa. The Middle East, India, like it was massive, massive empire. Um, and in their way stood the Frankish kingdom. And the Frankish kingdom was kind of the closest thing to a superpower at that time. But it was still f- far less than the glory oh, yeah. of the Roman Empire. They were just kind of the, the largest collection of right. peoples, I guess you could say. Um, and And so... And they're going to become even more important later on in history, but um, they were led by a guy named Charles Martel, who's known Martel meaning the hammer. Mm. Mm. You need a good name. If your that. nickname's the hammer. That's way better than Boniface. Yeah. The <laughs> hammer. The hammer. So he had built an army, and, and it was partly funded by a pretty large loan that he took from the Pope. Do you think he ever had an opportunity to grow up and be a poet? With a name like the hammer, the hammer. I think I think I'll be a poet. No, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> so so he yeah he'd built up this large army that was funded through a a big loan from the Pope, and the reason for that was this: is the Pope understood that if the Caliphate breaks through Francia, that that's the end. Yeah, and this is this is not the very beginning, but this is where we start seeing. Not just the political, but the militant actions of the Pope, the decisions mm-hmm. being made mm-hmm. for the preservation of the church yeah. by means of human armies yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in a way that will later become kind of how the church runs yeah. for a very long time. Yeah. And, and again, like as we've said before, like defending that course of action is not necessarily something we have to do. But I will say this, had he not, had the Franks not withstood the caliphate, I don't know. I don't know what church history would have been like. Church might have gone underground. It might have been persecuted. For for a long time. (laughs) It might have gone underground in persecution. And you know what the church does underground in persecution? It distills and strengthens. That's true. Instead of 
That's true. Watering down, it might have been a strong... You might have never needed the Reformation. <laughs> That's my pacifist p- opinion. Yeah, well, if I was there, I would have been hanging out with Charles Martel. That's all I'm going to say. So, yeah, anyway... I would have been hanging out with Jesus <laughs> Oh, on his side of the issue. <laughs> So, in any case, despite being heavily outnumbered, the Franks the Franks win the day. They push back the caliphate. Um, so, there is sig- historical significance because world history, particular history of Europe, would have been severely different yeah. had that not occurred. And that battle, the Battle of Tours, is interesting from a battle perspective. Mm. Oh, yeah. Right? Where the, the Muslim army presses onto the battlefield— Mm-hmm. And instead of coming out and meeting them, mm-hmm. you have the Franks hanging back in the trees. Yep. Like, just hold your position. Mm-hmm. Hold your position. Hold your ground. Mm-hmm. And eventually, they prepare to go out, and the enemy's gone. Like, mysteriously gone. Camps are empty. <laughs> right. <laughs> and rumors spread within the camp that things were about to get nasty, and that the ar- the Frankish army was bigger than it actually was, and... Mm-hmm. They had retreated. Yeah. Odd. A very anticlimactic ending. Mm. Unless you're a Frank, in which case you're like, couldn't (laughs) be a better ending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there was maybe some fighting leading up to it, but yeah, this whole weird, mysterious thing that kind of, the way it ended was really strange. Sure, no, there there was the coming into Mm -hmm. and the Franks hanging back and Mm -hmm. fighting from the trees Mm -hmm. for a long time. You know, it reminds me of a story, Tim where a superior army was coming against God's people and were confused and fled the battlefield even though they had sure victory. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just teasing. Yeah. Um, who knows, right? We could, Divine intervention or just silliness, <laughs> bad generalship? I don't know. But in any case, that's, that's how it ended. Um, now we get to maybe the, the most theological thing that we're going to talk about today which is the icon controversy iconoclasm iconoclasts yeah. and icono duels i think is the other one yeah yeah fun so in i'm the, i'm interested to see where, where we I'm, land on this yeah it's okay cuz i think we're going to land in different places yeah it's okay so in probably about the 500s or so there, there had been there had been images of Christ and others that had been around for a long time, but in the 500s, the production of these images becomes increasingly popular. So statues, paintings, carvings of Jesus, Mary, angels, saints, etc., became highly valued, and in certain circles, were deemed to have a certain spiritual significance to them, depending. On, mm-hmm. on the context. Um, certain bishops kind of spoke up about this, saying this might be towing the line of idolatry a bit. Uh, but the controversy itself was really kind of cranked up to full gear in the Eastern Empire. The West didn't get as involved in this. This was more of an Eastern Christianity thing. So think Constantinople and, and, and that that part of the world. It was kicked off when Emperor Leo III ordered for the destruction of a famous statue of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then his son, Constantine V, passed a law forbidding the use of images and icons in the church. And that made a lot of people really angry. Sure. Um, and you, you essentially had two groups who were really angry at each other. You had one group who were like really gung-ho about it, and they are running around destroying every image they could find. And then other groups fighting those people to defend the images that they had— and so things had to be um, resolved. And the, the monks in particular were not happy with these moves by Leo and Constantine. Um, because creating these images was a significant source of income for them. Sure. They okay. were producing these things for churches and homes and, mm-hmm. and public places to be used. you know. And, and also if they had a particularly important statue or painting or carving or whatever it might be. You know, pilgrims would travel to their church to visit. And so, again, it was there was there was a financial component, I think, as well as theological. Um, One key defendant, though, of using images was John of Damascus. And he essentially said, look, 
If the invisible God had become visible in the man, Jesus Christ, what's wrong with making images of him, right? If Jesus is the image of God, why can't we make images of Jesus? Right. I agree. Yeah. And so eventually there is a council called the Second Council of Nicaea, like 400 years after the First Council of Nicaea. Right. And... Um, and so they use some biblical arguments to justify the use of it. I looked up the actual passages, and they're all about the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. That mm-hmm. was kind of like their go-to thing. Like, hey, look, they had cherubim. So, I mean, it was, I, there's probably other places they could have go to support their argument more, I think. But Possibly. It, it was just, Possibly, it was just, yeah. It was interesting. Um, and obviously leaning on the writings of the early fathers who also supported the use of images. And so... Their, their kind of final decision was that they condemned those people who rejected images as being like Jews and Muslims because mm-hmm. the Jews and the Muslims don't represent God in a visible form. Okay. Um, so to reject images was non-Christian. Um, and so images should be shown, and the, the phrase was with fervent and reverent veneration, but not true adoration which alone should be given to God. So so we see this. This is why when you talk to a Roman Catholic person about their use of images, they'll be like, well, we don't worship the image. We just venerate it. Right. Getting people to define that, though, I mean, is is tricky. Sure. No, I can see that. <laughs> right? Like, what is where is the line drawn between veneration and um, and adoration? The folks that I think you would agree with, Tim, though, and, and this doesn't get a lot of press, is the, the Frankish and British churches, they took a bit of a middle way. And they essentially said, they, they produced a document, Charlemagne produced a document that said, look, images are okay for instruction. They're okay to bring things to remembrance, but don't burn incense before them. And don't burn candles before them. Yep. That's, that's, that's where it gets messy, right? Yeah. And it doesn't just end here. No, 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 no. There's a there's a second iconoclastic movement yeah. in the ninth century, mm-hmm. uh, and, and this runs right up to the tail end, right? So this, basically, this first iconoclastic movement runs into 787-ish, mm-hmm. and the second one starts in 814. <laughs> so things calm Just down like everyone went home and had lunch, came back, and started over again. <laughs> uh, it's hard to even call that two movements. Right. I mean, let's do the math. Not even thirty years, yeah, twenty-seven years, yeah. But anyway, uh, just their kids. They just <laughs> their kids fought about it again. They finished fighting about it, and then their kids did. So, yeah. So here's here's the thing. I I've said already in this episode and in previous episodes, icons only give bear the weight that you give them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important that we not get to a place where we're worshiping or I would even say venerating mm-hmm. an, an image itself as if what I would say in that is addressing a thing as if it is something other than an inanimate object. Right. 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 I love in the prophets when we hear a conversation about like you chop down a tree, half of it you used to cook, to split up and put into a fire to cook your meal. Mm-hmm. And the other half, you carved into a god and worshipped it. Mm-hmm. How does that make sense? Right. I, I think I think that's really poignant here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But setting things up around us that are reminders, I think is helpful. Mm. And I would say, the rather than having an iconoclastic position to say, do away with these things, mm-hmm. the more appropriate is to teach people how to appropriately use them. Right. Right? And the Bible doesn't say in the same way, don't create images. It talks about graven images mm-hmm. and the worship of images. Right. Um, and so that's where I would stand on that. Mm-hmm. And I don't see it as a potential... I almost said Second Amendment. Uh, second, second, amendment. second Commandment violation. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you know, I tend to do that. I tend to do the whole, like, I was going to say, and then I just say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't see it as a slippery slope kind of argument in that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. 
I, I think there's a legalistic position of saying it could lead to this, so stop it here, mm-hmm. which I think is unbiblical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll go even further. This is this is my opportunity not only to have those who are not for icons frustrated. Mm-hmm. I'm going to turn my own people against me. You okay. ready? Because right. I would take it this far. Mm-hmm. I'm not that opposed to the concept of a crucifix. Oh, okay. And yeah. that's and the reason I say it's a big deal is because the Baptist position, mm-hmm. all of the Protestant position is crucifixes are for the Orthodox Church mm. and the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. Let him down. Yeah. Nobody thinks Jesus is still on the cross. Yeah, the Catholics know that. They don't They don't <laughs> have the crucifix, and they're like, oh, look, because I'm sure if you went down there, you'd still see him there. That's not, that's not the position. Right. And so to argue that he's not there anymore is a non-starter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're arguing for something that your opponent's only going to agree with. Mm-hmm. The purpose of it is to remember that he was there. Right. And even this morning, as we were planning out the Good Friday service— mm. We were talking about how so many of the songs that we had considered spend a lot of time talking about the substitution that Christ paid on the cross for my sins, Mm -hmm. and then they jump into the victory of him conquering death, forgiving my sins, those kinds of things. Perfect any Sunday of the year. Right. But on Good Friday, we kind of want to sit in it longer. This is our special day set aside to spend particular time recognizing Jesus's price paid on the cross Mm. and not moving on from there, but giving it its weight, Mm. its due weight. Mm -hmm. And I think a crucifix does that. Right. Um, Then again, I have zero Catholic background. Right. And so for me, I it's not anything that I needed to move past ever. Right. Uh, and and so that's where I think it's going to get into the personal thing. Yeah. Um, whereas I could, I'm just going to put words in your mouth. Mm-hmm. You've already said you grew up in school mm-hmm. that was very Catholic and French speaking. Mm-hmm. And so you've seen those things go wrong Yeah. in a way that would make you more cautious than I would be. Yeah. Yeah, and I think so, and it's probably been a while since I've shared my my view on this. And 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 here's the thing that where I'm at with this is it's not a primary issue. My mm-hmm. my opinion about uh, images of Jesus is not a primary issue, so it's not something that I'm trying to bind people's consciences on. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is the place that I've come to. You must come to this place, or else you are not being faithful to God. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a some theological issues with um, with the images of Jesus. Now, that being said, as as we've mentioned before, I'm not 100% consistent because the reality is all the best children's books that teach kids about the Bible, these things that I'm teaching, you know, using to teach my toddler at home, they got pictures of Jesus. And I'm not going to go in with a pair of scissors and cut out every picture of Jesus. Okay? They're rudimentary cartoon depictions of Jesus. I I typically refrain from watching movies and television shows of Jesus. I because I again I think that Jesus perfectly embodied who God was, um not just in his moral excellence, not even just in what he said, but in the way he spoke, in the way in his body language in every single facet and to represent that through an actor on the screen is a really, really diminished version of that and could potentially, you know, you've got the one interpretation of Jesus film where Jesus is like smiling all the time. And the other one where he's like super, like, you know, seems super depressed all the time or whatever it might be, or we have this image in our mind of what he must look like. I just, I, I don't know if that's helpful for me. So I'm willing to explain my opinion to people, but honestly, it's not a deal breaker. It's, it's whatever, right? Like it's, I'm not going to, write articles about this or write a book about my position but i i i don't uh i i don't think they're harmless um but i totally understand why the majority of people would disagree with me so that's that's fine yeah and i i i'm with you 
on movies about Jesus where he goes off script mm. and they have him saying or responding to things that aren't scripture themselves. Yeah. Because I don't know that that's exactly what Jesus would say, would have said. And in mm. fact, a lot of what Jesus says are things that people didn't expect he would have said. Yeah. So I'm not for putting words in his mouth. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Mm-hmm. Um, or even, even actions that we don't know to have been true. Right. Uh, when it comes to the form, I have a little more space. I don't figure his physical form was glorified. Mm-hmm. I think Isaiah 53, 2 mm-hmm. tells us that it wasn't, mm-hmm. or at least at that point, wasn't to be expected to be. Mm-hmm. Um, also, are we going to put forth a lesser image? I, I think that's true. Um, I, I agree with the statement that Jesus his incarnation itself is a lesser form of him. Mm. It doesn't represent his full glory. God creates man in his own image. Mm. You and I have talked about this in this before, but God creates man in his own image. And so God himself is creating a physical form representing himself that is inferior and in fact, rebellious to himself. Mm. Uh, So I think it's, again, I, it's it, to me, it's simply an icon, right? Uh, which they would have said, duh, that's why we're it's the iconoclasts, <laughs> right? That's why we're doing this. Right. Uh, to me, it's, the way I see it is simply an icon is to say it only, it only re- points us to the person of Jesus. It does mm-hmm. not represent Jesus. Yeah. Right? Um, otherwise, you, what do you have? Just like this void <laughs> there, right? Like this ghostly void thing. <laughs> Maybe that feels a little Gnostic to me. <laughs> Um, sure. so yeah, no, that's yeah. fair. And I want to let people know, like, <laughs> cause, cause I, what you want to let people know is to put away their nativity sets. If they no, invite you over for Christmas, no, because no. you're taking baby Jesus and you're going to stick it in your pocket <laughs> and you're going to walk out to purify their home. No, no. I don't want people to think that I, that I think any less of them or, or would lose any respect if they've got pictures of Jesus or nativity sets or whatever. It is what it is. I realize that like, you know, my, my perspective on this is in a tiny minority of our church, Mm -hmm. uh, and a tiny minority of the evangelical church. Um, so, and in a tiny minority over church history, there are very few times in church history where the majority of people would have agreed with me. So, um, that's that's fine. I understand that. Yeah. I'm weird. It's and, okay. And I, I'm the same way on like a Protestant who's not opposed to a crucifix. That's a small camp. Yeah, yeah. It's right. <laughs> but I would say to that, just like we said earlier, that the Catholic Church was saying, We're not gonna do that because that's what the Jews do, even mm-hmm. if it's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I would say the same thing as what we're doing. They're like, no, crucifix is what Catholics do. So and, we don't do that. And the best way to be a good Protestant. Right is to be as distinct from the Catholic Church as possible, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. if it looks like it might be Catholic, we're going to do a different thing, right? <laughs> because you know what, the Catholics also use an empty cross. Yeah. Oh yeah, all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I they know. use more empty crosses than they would a crucifix, so you can't run from that one unless you're going to be completely iconoclastic, <laughs> right? In which they wouldn't even use the cross, right? Or the fish, right? Or any of those other things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the story where we're at in the in the narrative here, as we're approaching the year eight hundred, um, we're going to get into some interesting developments that are that are going to happen in the ninth and tenth century soon. But uh, one kind of notable thing that is maybe a precursor to something bigger that happens. But in seven ninety three, on a little island off the coast of of England, where there's a monastery there with some some really nice stuff. A few boats of Vikings show up. Skull. Take some stuff, kill some priests, and go back home to tell about this wonderful land they found mm-hmm. that is just full of riches, and the people there don't even defend themselves. And that's going to start uh, a real movement in the Scandinavian world and across the North Atlantic. So, yeah. And when you think about Viking culture, we only think about just brutality. Yeah. Right. The warring Viking, Viking culture, Mm -hmm. but to see people not defending themselves Mm -hmm. and to be like, 
You just give them a couple months, they'll grow n- new food, create new things, go back and grab that. And just, <laughs> I guess it's like going to the supermarket for them, right? You, you got to let them restock the shelves. But we'll go back and give, man, the brutality. Yeah, it's bad. The heartlessness it's of bad. it all. It's bad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, the Vikings. Yeah, and it, it gets... It gets interesting. One notable thing that I always try to kind of uh, remind people of in my history nerddom is the the people themselves weren't the Vikings. Viking was a job title. Viking was a thing that mm-hmm. you did. It was like doing seasonal work, right? But rather than going out to the oil sands, you got on a boat and went wherever and killed people and stole their stuff. And then you'd come home and, and you know, a young guy would go out and do that for a few years so he could save up to buy a farm. And that he would do that. That's just like, it's 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 foreign to our to our kind of understanding that people would just do that, but it was uh, it was the easiest way to make money quick, and they were good at it. I I have this capacity to overthink everything. Okay, and I also have a little boy, mm. and I think to myself about how little boys play, and yeah, the concept of a soldier in play, sure, right. There's the issue of defense, mm. which we've said we're not going to land one side or the other, but sure. at least is something that has some level of moral value to it. Mm. Uh, but at what point did piracy, the pirates themselves, ninjas, or Vikings become cute things? Right. They're all... <laughs> robbers and murderers and rapists and like it's bad it's really really bad it's it's as bad as it gets and we're like how cute he wants to be a ninja (laughs) or how cute he wants to be a pirate or look the pastor wore a vikings jersey oh don't even get me started (laughs) skull vikings okay (laughs) <laughs> All right. Do we have anything else to talk about, Tim? I feel like we moved on from that too quickly. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Yes, it is. Take care, everyone. See you.